0: So good to be with you today. I'm, I'm really enjoying teaching this series on worship. appreciate so much you're letting us jump right into the deep end because that's where you have to start to get worship right. Big idea one, worship is by God and for God. We get that right. We're on the path to true worship. And, and today, we're talking about us as worshipers. I thought it would be a good idea if we began by reviewing the working definition that we came up with two weeks ago. It captures pretty much everything we've learned in our first weeks. Let's say this together. Worship is our highest calling and eternal vocation, It involves all that we are, mind, emotion, will, and body, responding in attitude and action in every detail of life to all that God is and does. Worship is praise and adoration directed to the Father by way of the Son, Jesus Christ, enabled by the Holy Spirit. The part we're going to focus on today in that definition is that that section in every detail of life. I want to read a statement by Alan M. who wrote a definitive book on worship about 20 years ago called Worship, Rediscovering the Missing Jewel. When corporate worship becomes ineffective, change seems to be called for. Our attempts to change take many forms, which we feel will somehow bring us to more pure worship. We seem almost consciously to avoid the real issue, which is heart intent. We build excuses into our thinking. We may say, if only the place of worship were more beautiful, comfortable, with or without visual symbolism. Then then we could truly worship. Or we may say... If there were only more awe, more reverence, more a sense of the mystery of God, or if people were more relational and possessed with a real sense of warmth and community, or If the musical expression were of a higher caliber with the proper recognition that God desires and demands the best art of which man is capable, both in composition and performance, or if the music were more contemporary, more now, so I could understand it, then I could really worship. In this brief list, perhaps your favorite art form in worship was not mentioned, But with some thought, you could identify your area of concern, your if only. But the real factor in worship is a heart desire for God. And the reason it fails to occur in the pew is because it fails to occur in the daily routine of life. One of the critical things for us to understand as we begin to look at who we are as worshipers, as people, Worship is an orientation for life. Say that. Worship is an orientation for life. And if you don't get that, it doesn't matter what we do here on Sunday morning. Last week we introduced three metaphors in the New Testament that come out of the Old Testament. Temple, priest, and sacrifice. We're going to look at priest next week because that's more corporate We're a kingdom of priests. Today, we're going to focus on those two ideas. First of all, that I am a temple. Let's say that together. Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, this concept is actually pretty popular today. How often do you see somebody at a gym or someplace say, My body is a temple. (laughs) Turn to the person next to you and say, My body is a temple. (laughs) What our culture really means by that is that our body is an idol. We worship it. I was driving to church several years ago and my wife called me on the phone and she's cracking up because she heard this story on the radio. A woman had something fatal happen to her, and as she goes to heaven, God says to her, what are you doing here? You got 20 more years to live, and then she wakes up. So confident of this two extra decades of life, she has everything that she could possibly have to improve her body. If it could be tucked, it's tucked. If it could be be filled, it's filled. If, If it could be removed, it's removed. So she just finishes, and she's ready to embrace the next two decades. She walks out of the hospital, goes across the street, and hit by a bus and dies instantly. She sees God and says, I I thought you said I had 20 more years. God said, I didn't recognize you. (laughs) Yeah, the things we do to our temple when we worship it. The idea of temple is quite different than that, and we're gonna explore that today. It's gonna be part of the basis for offering four keys to a worship-filled life. The second metaphor is sacrifice. Let's say this from Romans 12. In view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Two things about this verse, and then we're going to actually open up both passages and, and dig them out a little bit. The first thing is what appears to be an oxymoron, living sacrifice. It's like, like jumbo shrimp, government efficiency, you know, <laughs> living sacrifice. We're going to explore that together. And the second thing, Paul says this is your true worship. That's a phrase we've been, we've been going back to. It's the subtitle of our whole series. Enter in embracing your life as a true worshiper. And so within these two metaphors are these four keys to what we're calling a worship-filled life. Seeing worship as a context for living. So let's start by turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Corinth was about sensuality and excess. The whole city was about that. And Gentiles had come to Christ, but yet that sensuality and excess worked its way into their lives. There was immorality, a lot of sexual immorality in the church of Corinth. But there was also excess and sensuality in their worship. So Paul writes them to correct their worship, to bring it into balance And he writes to deal with the issue of sexuality. So we're going to pick up at verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 6. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. And then he says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And therefore, honor God with your body. So the first key to embracing a worship-filled life has to do with understanding and recognizing and living in God's presence. The Spirit lives within you. In the Old Testament, The Holy Spirit was not constantly present in people's lives, there was no indwelling, there was no baptizing of the Holy Spirit into the people of God. The Holy Spirit came upon people and empowered them for certain things and then departed. One of the things that the cross has made possible is that the Holy Spirit has moved in and is part of our life. Because of that, God is to be our closest and most important relationship. Last week, we emphasized that what sets us apart as human beings, and the reason why we are the peak of God's creation, created in His image, is that we are both body and spirit. And because of that, we are intended to worship God through an intimate relationship with Him. We are to walk with God. In the Old Testament, There was an exceptional person by the name of Enoch. Genesis talks about him. There's just this little epitaph about Enoch. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. all it says about Enoch. But the writer of Hebrews notes it as something that was an exception in the Old Testament. You see, that level of intimacy was not the norm even for the people of God. Remember, God dwelled in His holy temple. And even when they came to the temple, they couldn't go into the place where God actually dwelled. The veil separated them from God. In the New Testament, the veil is torn and not only are we allowed to come boldly into God's presence, but He comes into us. There's this like sharing of life that these two mixed ideas of us coming into the Holy of Holies and the Holy Spirit moving into us. There's a a give and take in relationship. But that wasn't the case in the Old Testament. Enoch walked so closely with God. Somehow he transcended the norm. And his walk with God was so close that there was no way to get closer in this life. And so somehow God just took him. As far as we know, Enoch did not face death. I remember um, hearing about a parent trying to explain that to their child. What do you mean that God took him? And the parent said, well, Enoch and God were really good friends. And they probably went on lots of walks together. And I think maybe one day they just kept walking and walking and walking and it got later and later and later. And they realized how far they were from Enoch's house. And so God said, why don't you just come to my place? (laughs) It's a great thought. But the point is that he stands out in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Enoch ought to be right at home, right here. We are to walk with God with that intimacy practicing, becoming aware, developing that relationship with God, you say, well, how do I do that? It's not like a, a human friendship where we can actually eat a meal together and, and we can exchange dialogue. I know very few people who authentically have a conversation with God. So how do I develop that relationship with God? How do I hear from God? Well, here's, here's the truth. God is constantly speaking to you. God's Word is alive and active, Scripture says, and sharper than a two-edged sword. God is always speaking to you. Go to the Word. The Word is always where we begin and it's always where we end. It's how we develop our relationship with God. Being aware of God's presence also reminds us, as in our big idea, that everywhere I am is a place of worship. We are never anywhere where we are allowed to do anything except that will bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. You don't get time off when you're a temple. The second key to a worship-filled life is God's possession. What does Paul say? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. What, What did it cost God to purchase us? Be his own. It costs the blood, the death, the passion, the sacrifice of his son Jesus Christ. He paid the dearest of prices for us. First of all, that reminds us how precious we are to him that he was willing to pay that price. But it also should make you understand that you belong to him. Our bodies are a sacred place in which God is worshiped, revered, and honored. That's what a temple is. It's a sacred place in which God is worshiped, revered, and honored. We also are a culture of sensuality and excess. And so the correctives to the church in Corinth really match us. I mean, increasingly the whole idea of sexual purity in the church is going by the wayside increasingly we are convincing ourselves that we can compartmentalize our sexuality, whether it's private pornography or whether it's in our dating relationships, having casual sex or doing everything but have intercourse, as though somehow that's not sex. All these different things that we have a way of justifying. We've bought the world's idea of it. I can't believe when I hear young couples say, well, how will we know if we're a good match if we don't, Live together first. That's the world's excess speaking. I remember the first time I sat across from a very committed young man who said to me, I don't believe the Bible teaches that I need to be celibate. I believe the Bible teaches that if I'm married, I need to be devoted to that. But I don't believe the Bible teaches that I I need to not have sex outside of marriage. Well, I'm going to read for you where it says that. Chapter 7. Now to the unmarried and to the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. So I'm gonna pause there. Paul here is saying, I have found it to be a great benefit at this stage of my life and for the purposes of God not to be married. There is a call to that and Paul is putting that in front of a culture that thinks it's all about sexual happiness. And isn't that who we are as a culture? Why are we where we are in terms of sexual identity and and sexual practice? Because we all believe that somehow our sex drive deserves to be met. Paul's saying there's actually a passion, there's a purpose. Think about this. That can be better than sex. Now that's really hard for us as a culture because we can't think about anything that's better than sex. So imagine it. That Paul could say, serving the kingdom and my passion, my desire to know Christ, that passion is so much better that I actually am willing to forego marriage. But then he goes on. To the unmarried and to the widow, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, which is okay, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion just one obvious example if you have sexual urges that is for marriage so get married I didn't plan on getting into all this but let, let me let me talk to couples here that are thinking about getting married you are either sexually active or struggling with it right now why put a four-year plan on your engagement Because you want to have a house, or you want to get settled. That's not the biblical pattern. Get married. Honor God with your sexuality, and then pursue your life together. All right, enough of that. (laughs) Say this again. Everywhere I am is a place of worship. And everything I do needs to be an act of worship. Say it. Everything I do needs to be an act of worship. God's presence, God's possession. Third, God's purposes. Let's go to Romans chapter 12 where we see this idea of sacrifice now. We've talked about temple. Now we're gonna work this metaphor on sacrifice. Romans 12, I'm gonna begin reading at verse one. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is one of those fresh ideas. This idea of a living sacrifice, that's, that's his invention. And he's saying that you need to put yourself on the altar which means you reckon yourself as dead, but you're not, you're living. We are the original walking dead. I just thought of that. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in this soma, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. I'm offering myself every day. I'm taking up my cross daily, and I'm following him. I am therefore giving myself to God's purposes. Our lives are for God's good and pleasing and perfect will. And what that tells us is that God's purposes should always direct our passions and priorities. Uh, I feel really bad for people that are caught up in a passionless Christianity. Aren't you so glad that we enjoy God's presence, that we're moved? One of my favorite things of coming to Belmont Street is getting to know Phil Duncan. He came with the building. Phil says, if the body of Christ is all different parts, I'm the tear duct. I love that. Oh, passionless worship is not worship. It's not about relinquishing our passions. It's about our passions and our desires finding their direction by being surrendered to God's purposes. We're talking about pure passions. Let me get back to the sex thing. Contrary to the myth, sex was not the original sin. Sex was around before sin. Did you know that? Yeah. Adam wakes up. He sees this creature that moves him in a way he's never been moved. And he goes, whoa, man. And God says, whoa, man. We'll go with that. I like that. And then he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be committed to his wife, and the two will become one Flesh, that's sex. Sex is a part of God's perfect creation. The world has perverted it. Don't buy into it. Live with pure passions. There's actually a way to have a delightful, fulfilling sex life if God has that for you as an act of worship. Think about that. All right, enough of that. Can't get away from it. I'm sorry. God's presence, God's possession, God's purposes, and then ultimately for God's pleasure. He says we present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Everything I do is not only for God's glory, but for His pleasure. I want God to take delight in what I do. In the previous passage. 1 Corinthians 6, honor God with your body. That word for honored is the Greek word doxa, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Doxa means glorify, bring glory to God. So in other words, how you use your body is meant to worship God, to give honor to Him and to bring Him pleasure. And then he says, this is true and proper worship. Okay, so, let's think about this. We were created for one ultimate purpose, to bring glory to God. We are meant to do that through an intimate relationship and by responding creatively, actively, emotionally, heart, soul, mind, and strength to all that God is and all that He does. We are meant to do that in every detail of our life. And so if we really want to fulfill that purpose, this is where it begins. It's a worship-filled life. Sunday mornings are meant to be a crescendo where we as God's children are living for the pleasure of God, pursuing His presence and His relationship Shaping our passions and desires and dreams around God's purposes. Living for His pleasure, for His delight. And then we come together and all those separate little streams of worship become tributaries to this giant rushing river of praise when God's people come together. If we get that right, we will know worship. And until we get that right, we're just... We're just in preseason. <laughs> this is from Piper's book, Desiring God. Summarizes a worship-filled life. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Look at it, think about it, and let's say it one more time. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And so, Heavenly Father. This is what we ask. Forgive us for seeking satisfaction in other things when in fact You are our heart's desire. Father, may we be supremely satisfied in You. And in that, may You be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.